You are listening to the Investing.com's weekly crypto podcast with your host, Clément Thibault. Hello, everyone. Have a great Sunday. I'm your host, Clément Thibault. I'm a senior analyst at Investing.com, and we'll be going through the news today of the past uh, the past 10 days, I guess. Uh, in the crypto world, we're going to talk about the Wall Street Journal's report on crypto money laundering through Shapeshift. We're going to talk about Bill Clinton and the Ripple conference. There's also reports on EOS collusion between block producers. The FBI shut down one broker last week. And there was a Bitcoin bug. So we have a lot on our plate today to tackle, a lot of opinions, a lot of facts, and uh, it's going to be nice. So stay with us. So let's dive right in. Last week, we had a report by the Wall Street Journal saying that crypto exchanges and in particular U.S. entity Shapeshift facilitated money laundering with crypto. Now, if you don't know, money laundering with crypto is fa it's fairly easy because a lot of exchanges don't really ask for an ID and there's no know your customers restrictions, which means that your money is not tied to your identity, which means that you can basically use your money and then shift it around and crypto, Bitcoin, you know, you have addresses, but you don't have names. And, and you can even do that with even more privacy-oriented coins like Monero, which are almost impossible to track. So the Wall Street Journal focused on Shapeshift because it's from the U.S., so I think it speaks a little more to them. Uh, there's a lot of Chinese exchanges that operate exactly the same way so this is not something that is rela related strictly to shapeshift uh, shapeshift was a good platform for that because you could just send bitcoin and take out whatever you wanted and no one would ask you any questions so with you you can understand why it's perfect you know you go to the bank they want your id you know you want to do a business deal they want to know like who are you where the money's coming from and if you have weird transactions then they get flagged but this doesn't work like this with unregulated crypto exchanges when you can just come, take your money and go. And a few a few weeks ago, I think, Shapeshift actually announced that it was starting uh, Know Your Customers and, and anti-money laundering protections. And a lot of the crypto community was a little bit outraged at that because a lot of people interested in crypto are really into that privacy, you know, keep the government out, taxes and that kind of stuff. But I believe that Shapeshift knew what was coming. And, and they knew that they were going to get accused of money laundering. And this was kind of a way for them to, to get away, you know, to stay ahead of, you know, the PACs, try to stay ahead maybe of the SEC, although that might not necessarily work because the SEC is known to, you know, look back and, and see even as far as five, 10 years back. And they can still accuse you of things you've done 10 years in the past, even if you've done better since. So this doesn't say that. They'll necessarily, they're not off the hook. Um, the, I read the Wall Street Journal piece. It's, a, it's basically a good piece. I think that they highlighted, you know, they wanted to put a spotlight on the CEO, which is uh, Eric Voorhees, and, and they try to make him sound maybe a little crazy, you know, privacy, crazy, hates the government kind of stuff. There were a few quotes that were really unflattering. He, he might have said them. And then, you know, he probably stands behind them and that's fine. But there were definitely times that, you know, you felt that maybe, maybe the piece was a little bit too strict on the person himself. What the exchange did, you know, they try to they try to say that, you know, he did it kind of on purpose and that 
it's something that you know he wanted the he, he wanted to stand up to the government and that he did it on purpose did he i don't know that's what the that's what the piece tried to that's the picture the piece was trying to paint now you know it's it's crypto and this was um some people called it an eye opener i don't exactly see how that's an eye opener since you know it's i it's pretty common i mean i think that a lot of people know that this happens and crypto is perfect for money laundering and it's a it's a very vocal point of people that criticize crypto a lot of times it's something that they always say you know crypto is only used for criminals so and in a way you know it's true it has properties that are can enable criminals to do their bidding it's not it's not false it's true but you know at the end of the day in my opinion you know bitcoin's a tool and and there's a lot of tools in the world that can be used for bad purposes right if you take a shovel you know you're supposed to dig holes in the ground but you can also whack someone in the head it doesn't make shovels you know bad it makes the use of the shovel that is bad so that's where i stand on this case so yes bitcoin you know can be used for money laundering and of course you know money laundering obviously you don't want criminals you know laundering their money and then turning dirty money into clean money too easily and of course i understand why there's so many restrictions on in banks in the u.s and generally all over the world but you know uh, i think this piece really didn't help with the public perception of of bitcoin and if it's already in a lot of places taken as you know the criminal's instrument that this piece certainly didn't help so that's bad uh, we'll see what happens in the future like i said shapeshift already they already started you know gathering information know your customers and and anti-money laundering laundering and they're trying to they're trying to they're scrambling to kind of get it together to kind of regulate their practice but you know i, I won't be i wouldn't be surprised to see the sec in like two three years from now you know clamping down on a lot of practices that today just run unregulated and a lot of people are not happy about that but the SEC always takes time and and they can they will come after you, you know, when they want to come after you. And that could be, you know, two, three years of gathering evidence, you know, and they're doing on the down low and everything seems OK, like the SEC doesn't care. And then all of a sudden, you know, they hit you with it. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on, and not just with this particular company, but of course, with every exchange and every company that is, you know, operating illegally i want to say but it's not really legal it's just in kind of a gray area where you know it might you know a lot of people take risks in this space trying to get trying to see if they can you know make money in a gray area something that's not really defined and a lot of people are already always saying you know like crypto is good and bad and, and the lack of regulation is good and bad because on the one hand you know you get to do a lot of things that regulations might have killed but on the other hand you know you're not even sure in which you know, legal jurisdiction you, you're operating right now. So it's a problem. But it's it's a very interesting topic. All Everything that regards, you know, legal issues and blockchain and, and money laundering and securities offering that we'll get to later with one broker. It's really interesting. So, uh, yeah, keep, keep an eye on that, definitely. And, and I will, too. And if there's any update, of course, I'll update. Now to our second item on today's menu that's a uh, bill clinton speaking at the ripple conference so uh well you know off the top of my head you know why would bill clinton go 
to the Ripple Conference? Like, what's the connection between Bill Clinton, the 42nd president of the United States, and, and blockchain in general? Now, let's start with what he said, which is a lot of things and very little related to crypto. What he did say was that, you know, we had to put anti-money laundering, you know, laws in place, and we need to prevent that. And that, on the other hand, regulation can really kill the innovation. So he really didn't say much, if anything. He said a lot of things about a lot of other conflicts in the world. And, but, you know, his, his speech was definitely not on blockchain. And, you know, honestly, why would you expect Bill Clinton to come and speak on, on blockchain? Like, he's done a lot of things and he knows a lot about a lot of things, honestly. You know, he was the president of the United States. So respect to him in that regard. But, but cryptocurrency conference and and i honestly think that you know at the end of the day this was kind of ripple wanting to position itself you know as as a company that can bring a former president to speak and and i, I if you remember you know during the elections and there were a lot of reports about how you know both hillary and bill go in and speak to banks right in goldman sachs morgan stanley jp morgan how they give, how they give all those sorts of, of speeches to those kind of people, and and I think that most of what Ripple was trying to achieve was trying to signal to people: listen, we're a serious company. We have an ex-president talking at our conference. So I really don't think that even you know what what he said just just doesn't matter because his he's just the presence, just the fact that they were able to bring you know, uh, a former president is, is a lot. And it's a victory for Ripple, even though, you know, like I said, I don't really understand what's the point of it. It's, you know, if you know anything about blockchains and crypto, then you know that Bill Clinton really doesn't have anything to do with that stuff. So again, I think it was just virtue signaling and then showing people that, hey, we can bring one, we can bring a former president. And, and the one thing that's interesting to me is that you know, there's been a lot of claims around Ripple that they're claiming that they didn't invent XRP, the, the currency as it's currently called, because it was called Ripple at some point. And then, you know, there's history and documents and that sort of stuff. Uh, and it will be interesting because, you know, a lot of times when, when someone in a power position or some kind of celebrity status uh, steps up and, and kind of endorses a project, and I'm not saying that Bill Clinton endorses Ripple, but... Speaking at a conference sponsored by someone, you know, that is not necessarily, I mean, you don't exactly know exactly what's going on with them. It's interesting. You know, we've had, I think, Floyd Mayweather, you know, endorsing a scam ICO. And again, I'm not calling Ripple a, a scam. You know, I, I'm i not. It's just that it's interesting to see how Bill Clinton did kind of put his reputation on the line for a project that is yet very unproven. So that's definitely something, you know, that that I take into account. You know, I I it's a victory for Ripple really to to be able to bring a former president, but in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it means much again except for the fact that they want to signal that, you know, they're in the big leagues. You know that they're able to bring a former president just like Goldman, just like JP Morgan, like I said. So that that's honestly just what I think it is and I wouldn't put too much, you know, too much into it, but it made the news and it was big news last week. 
so uh, it got covered by everybody. So it's definitely worth uh, worth covering and worth knowing. And to our third item of the day, collusion in EOS. Now, there's been a document leaked by EOS One uh, showing a table that proves that Chinese exchange Huobi reportedly engaged in mutual voting and, and buying votes and, and payoffs and colluded with other voters in, in, in the EOS ecosystem. Now, one thing that you need to know before we begin this conversation is that block producers, you know, they're voting to be block producers and block producers are like miners in Bitcoin. You know, they're the one that, you know, it's, it's in the name, they produce the blocks. And, and EOS uses a delegated, delegated proof of stake uh, consensus protocol. And that's how they decide what goes in the blocks and, and what doesn't go in the blocks. And so it's, it's important. Those block producers have a lot of power and they're very influential over the system. So we know that, for example, a few months back, there was a scam involving EOS and they actually managed to freeze accounts. So the block producers decided that certain funds in certain addresses are on a blacklist. And so those funds cannot be ever spent because no miner will ever agree to put them in, in one of the blocks. So they have a lot of power. And, and you know, at, at the end of the day, it... Where's money's involved, you know, where money's involved, people will try to, you know, collude and inform cartels. And, you know, of course, it goes against the, the EOS constitution that says that you can't buy votes and, and you shouldn't encourage that. And it's wrong. But, you know, I, I think that in the at the end of the day today, EOS with with how the delegated proof of stake I think that it introduces a lot of old problems to new technology, meaning that, you know, we have those problems in real life outside of the blockchain, outside of technology. We have this problem in politics today. Right. So you, you, you vote for that. I vote for that. This is how Congress works. And in a lot of ways, you know, the, the, the cryptography element in, you know, cryptocurrencies was kind of supposed to be able to to cut it out, you know, to, to make the environment trustless in a way. So so EOS is is building a four billion dollar platform. I mean, at least that's what they raised. But they're introducing a lot of problems that you know this is what they were supposed to solve, or this is not what they were supposed to solve. But this is what the entire premise of of cryptocurrencies. And, and smart contracts and that kind of stuff was supposed to solve. So everything in the EOS collusion is, of course, allegedly. And although, you know, one of the producers actually said that they've heard that some stuff like that might be happening. So it's not confirmation. But I mean, at the end of the day, when you do when you do an incentive analysis, it kind of makes sense. You know, wherever people can take advantage, they will. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that EOS won't or that the block producers won't. Now, there's 21 block producers, 12 of them are Chinese. That's not saying anything about the network or about the trustworthiness of any of them. 
But of course, you know, if if people can collude and can, you know, grow their benefits and solidify their power, you know, you have to expect them to do it. And I think that this is why this is what EOS might have missed on, you know, by creating a system that is blockchain and everything is nice, but the same old, you know, power problems exist. And and again, I'm not sure exactly how EOS will develop going forward. I'm not following, you know, every day on, on the latest EOS development. I'm the occasional EOS person trying to figure out what's going on exactly and how does it work. I mean, I know that already, but developments in, in yeah, just following developments basically. And and this is just this is just bad, you know. And at the end of the day, it will hurt the project. And And, you know, even if they have good ideas and everything, if the execution is not good, then the project won't work and, and EOS is still worth a lot of money today. So that's why we're talking about it. So it, it'll be, we, we, yeah, we need to definitely take a look at this forward and see if, I, you know, if you're investing in EOS, I definitely suggest that you look into it and, and, and see what's the latest news and, and if really it's something that, you know, you want your money to be invested in because you might decide that it's okay and I have nothing against that. It's your money. You do whatever you want with it. But knowing about what's happening is important and taking, you know, the awareness and taking an educated decision into where your money goes is important. So that's that's that with EOS, you know, uh, there might be collusion. There's been a document leaked and I'm, I'm guessing we know more, you know, as time goes. But again, if, if there's a place where people can collusion and create a cartel, then, yeah, you bet they will. And EOS no different. <laughs> Now to our second to last topic of the day, uh, OneBroker. So OneBroker.com was basically a CFD platform with Bitcoin. A CFD platform is when you have a contract for a difference where the broker is the counterparty, meaning that, you know, I want to buy an Apple CFD at, um, I don't know, let's say $200. And if, if, the bro if the Apple, sh I'm going long, and if the Apple share, the underlying asset, which is the share, goes up $5, then I'll get five dollars because my contract is for the difference from the price I bought it at to the price of the underlying security. Once you know I'm I'm closing the contract or the position, and the their domain was seized by the FBI uh, last week, and uh, the SEC and the CFTC both have a bone to pick with it. So basically, the SEC claim that it was an unregistered security-based swap stealer, uh, which, which, like I said, you know, a CFD is following the price of an underlying security. So just because you're not selling the security itself, like the Apple share, an actual Apple share, doesn't mean that a product that is based on the price of the share, you know, you still have to be regulated. You can't just sell kind of a, you know, an Apple, a fake Apple share that's actually following the price, kind of like what, what a CFD is and, and claim that, you know, you don't need to be registered. You still, you still need to, because you the underlying asset is still part of the financial markets. And that's something that, you know, the SEC is trying to protect retail investors. So of course, everything that has to do with financial markets, it needs to be regulated. And when I said at the beginning of the podcast, I said that the SEC comes can come after you, you know, for years after you started operating. 
and and this one actually started operating one broker started operating in 2012 so it's basically been operating for six years before the sec did anything with it so you know at the times the sec deals with is not you know like you and i think of time it's it's longer time periods with investigations and everything and the cftc says that it didn't have any anti-money laundering you know like we said with shapeshift a lot of a lot of exchanges a lot of bitcoin related businesses don't really do any know your customers procedures or don't really ask who the people you know that are participating in the platform are and it's you know it, it they don't think it's interesting and they don't think that you know and of course it adds costs you know when you have to have all those procedures so you know a lot of a lot of platforms are not are not regulated and are not even trying to now what's what's interesting in this particular case is that in the papers you can see that the FBI had an undercover agent using the platform and active on the platform with bitcoins right because the only way to buy you were buying apple cfds or any share cfd with bitcoin that was the thing and and the fbi had actually had someone from houston texas an agent in houston texas if you know buying and selling on the platform just to kind of prove that it was possible and to have some records of, of transactions that you know they were not following the law and that they were unregistered and and against the law basically and and i think that you know from all the from all the things that regard in this case it's this is the most interesting thing because we a lot of people in crypto think that law enforcement law enforcement is miles behind and it doesn't even care and and no one even knows anything about crypto but I think that, you know, slowly we're trying to see the, the, the SEC come into play. And even the FBI now actually operated an, an, an agent. There was an agent that actually had access to Bitcoin and funded his account with Bitcoin. So I think that, you know, if you're still operating an unregulated exchange, if you're still doing some shady business with crypto, you know, they're, they're, they're there. And, and, and they're really, you know, they, they have capabilities and of course, I'm not going to talk about the Silk Road, which was, you know, a different thing, but they have capabilities and they're starting to develop them more and more. And that's that's, in my opinion, you know, the most interesting thing about the one broker, really realizing that, you know, the FBI is actively on the case and actively looking for those kind of things. So, yeah, it got shut down. Uh, they claim that there's still access to the funds. So they claim that even though you can't really access them right now, all the funds are safe and that, you know, the platform was just shut down, but that this doesn't affect anything. So if you were trading on one broker, I mean, according to the company, everything is fine. Although that's what the company would have claimed, even if it wasn't fine, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, follow the developments of the coming days. Uh, they opened the platform in a read only so you could see your balances. And you could see exactly if, you know, what, I mean, what's going on. You can't really do trades anymore, but you can still access your account and see how much money you have there. And they're promising that everything will turn out okay. So, yeah, if you're investing in one broker, you probably know that by now. But it's interesting. To, it's definitely interesting to follow. Okay, and to our last 
topic of the day, uh, a Bitcoin bug and a pigeon coin exploit. So that's a pigeon coin, right? So uh, a Bitcoin bug. So there was a bug in Bitcoin that could have created inflation and basically could have created Bitcoin out of nowhere, thus breaking the 21 million hard cap of Bitcoin, which could be Honestly, you know, the if you're taking account Bitcoin and everything that it stands for, if if you up the cap on the 21 million, that Bitcoin isn't Bitcoin anymore. So that's something that, you know, if 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 it happens, it's it's critical to the system and it's it's really really bad. Now, the problem was that you could spend, you know, you could double spend in a single transaction, right? So in 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 better terms, I mean in in everyday terms, it's like, and thanks to the Jimmy Song Medium post that explained it, because it was a really clear and nice analogy. It was as if I'm paying you with the same $10 bill twice. I'm giving it to you, and then I'm giving it to you again. And you actually believe that you've been paid $20. So you can understand why that's a problem, because I could do it with $1,000. I could do it with a million dollars. You know, I'd pay you a million dollars. I'd pay you another million dollars. I mean, the same million dollars, and you think I'd pay you $2 million. So this bug would have allowed anyone, I mean, not anyone, but it would have, it would have, it would have allowed people to actually manufacture Bitcoin out of nowhere by double spending it uh, in the same transaction. Now, this bug was responsibly disclosed, which means that it was disclosed to the developers that could patch it before someone could successfully exploit it. And the odds of success of a successful exploit was was pretty small because you had to produce a block to actually make it. You had to produce the block yourself to actually manage to get it into the blockchain. And even then, you know, you this block would have would have been reje rejected by many, you know, full nodes checking blocks. So it would have created a separate chain. And then, you know, the, the odds of, of this chain actually catching on as the longest chain when everyone, you know, can notice that something has been done is very unlikely. But it's it's a very it serves as a very good reminder to that Bitcoin and like any other piece of software is not 100% free of critical bugs. And a lot of times, you know, when a lot of people are talking about about crypto, they're talking about, you know, putting their life savings into it. And and it's, you know, that it bothers me just because of that. Even if you completely believe in everything, there's still the possibility of bugs. And when we're talking about, you know, central banks and everything, yes, there is a possibility of a bug, but the reversal is, is a lot easier and we have mechanism for that. And Bitcoin is made as hard, you know, as a property. It's a feature and a critical bug could hit it, you know, a lot worse than, you know, the the dispute and, res and resolution mechanisms that we have in place today. But the bug wasn't exploited on Bitcoin, which is good because, like I said, the bug was responsibly disclosed and the developers actually, you know, put out a new version of the Bitcoin core client. They updated to 0.16.3, which is great. But in crypto, which is open source, there is the possibility of duplicating code. And you could create a new cryptocurrency 
based on the code of another cryptocurrency. And that's exactly what happened with Pigeon Coin. So Pigeon Coin basically is just a Bitcoin copycat. It took the source code, you know, and it's what, you know, they it's what they were trying to do. They were just trying to replicate Bitcoin. But the problem is that when a coin doesn't have a big community and a big development team behind it and people that are honestly always correcting bugs and always finding new things, you know, to improve, then the coin is a lot more vulnerable to these kind of exploits because it was disclosed. But by the time that someone on Pidget Coin actually, you know, took the steps needed to correct it before they could, it was exploited. So there was, I think, another 250 million Pidget Coin created with this. Uh, it's funny to say uh, with this exploit, which was worth not a lot. I think it was worth around fifteen thousand dollars. So not a lot of money was made, not a lot of money, but, you know, it still it still speaks to how vulnerable chains can be and especially how vulnerable side projects and copycats can be. And if something is not properly maintained all the time by serious people, then, yes, there's a much bigger possibility of exploits. And the bug was disclosed for like two weeks and Pigeon Coin, you know, they were they weren't on it and it just happened. So Bitcoin has that team. And Bitcoin has people actively looking after it. And even they missed the critical bug. But at least when the bug was found, they fixed it. And when you're dealing with other other projects, other cryptocurrencies, smaller cryptocurrencies, they might not have that. So it's definitely something, you know, the development team and, and who's taking care of the coin and how fast they, they fix things is definitely one of the biggest thing you have to look at when you're looking at cryptocurrency projects. Uh, all right. So that's basically it for this week. Uh, thanks for being with us. And uh, this is one of our first podcasts. So if anyone, you know, would like to tell us what they think or how we could improve it. And if you like it or you don't like it, uh, please be sure to write us and then to let us know and to write a comment. And then just to tell us, you know, how you feel about this podcast. What would you like to see going forward? Uh, what, what don't what don't you like? And uh, that's great. All right. So thank you all. And I'll see you next week.